This podcast is sponsored by the EV Clinic. Preparation for life. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El-Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? Just put on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We are very happy to be here with you today. We have another fantastic guest for you. But beforehand, I want to see and check on Katie. Katie, how are you doing? I've no exciting news today, Afif. You don't know. I've no awards, you know. No I'm awards just, to talk about. No awards to talk about. Just plain and simple mom yeah. life and work life. I have another bone to pick with you though. Oh my God. Every week, Afif. This is becoming a weekly thing. <laughs> We're like a marriage now. It's like when Jim goes, I need to talk to you about something. I get the fear of God. Yeah, I know. Whenever you bother actually promoting the podcast on your um, Instagram stories and Instagram reels, you know, the odd time you do that. You always talk about this a thief guy. Oh my God. I don't even notice. It's captions. Okay. And I don't ever read back my captions because I have very little time. And then Afif goes, this person that the thief is following. So whenever you say Afif, my name on Instagram, it thinks that you're talking about a thief, a person that robs you. So she's often talking about doing great things with this thief. You know, (laughs) I've done this with the thief and I've done that with the thief. Maybe it's my clarity, Afif. I need to just be a lot more. I've tried it. No matter how well you, what is the word? Enunciate. Enunciate, yeah. On Instagram. It, it it spells it as a thief. Oh. So I always have to go back. Well, then we just have to blame your parents. <laughs> they obviously didn't know you were going to be a big podcaster. In Ireland. In Ireland, when, yes. When I was delivered in Kuwait <laughs> 45 years yes. ago. Yes. The, the, the poor foresight. How dare they? How dare they? Anyway, moving on, we are going to talk about a serious topic today. Not that our topics aren't serious, but a topic that may be difficult to hear for a lot of parents. And that is sudden infant death syndrome and safe sleep practices. And I think it's an important topic to talk about because I have noticed this increasing trend in media to display cots that have really unsafe sort of sleeping cues and sleeping practices and the depiction of, you know, a cute baby surrounded by fluffy pillows, fluffy teddy bears, loose blankets around. And and I've done a reel about that recently that sort of resonated with a lot of people. And I think that it's important that we talk about SIDS and talk about safe sleeping practices. So what do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the cots, although I think they use them to sell, you know, have them all fluffy and looking nice. I think most parents at this stage know not to use the bumpers and all that kind of stuff. But I do still see those products being advertised like, you know, the sleeping pods and these, you know, these pillows and things like that. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. It's actually the leading cause of infant mortality between one month and one year of age. The risk of SIDS, though, however, has fallen down significantly since the 1990s when the back to sleep campaign Campaign. became quite relevant. And although we still struggle with defining what SIDS is and what the causes of SIDS are, there has been sort of a triple 
model or a triple hit that has been proposed, suggesting that SIDS occurs in infants with an underlying vulnerability, be it a genetic pattern or maybe something to do with the brainstem, who then experience a trigger event such as airflow obstruction or actually smoking inhalation or an infection at a vulnerable developmental stage, which is usually the first few months of life. So if that sort of trio of things happen at the same time, it increases your chances of SIDS. And we know that um, what triggered the Back to Sleep campaign is studies demonstrating that 95% of infants dying of SIDS actually had one or more risk factors. So either they were in prone position, meaning sleeping on their tummy, and they were suffering from an intercurrent illness, um, or they were premature. So these observations really have led to the promotion of the back to sleep campaign. Since then, the incidence of it has significantly come down. And people often ask me, where well, what are the risk factors of SIDS? There are multiple, but um, what do you think the most important ones would be? Smoking in the house? Yes. It's probably one of the biggest, I would think. Yeah. The biggest one actually is, seems to be smoking and smoking during pregnancy is a big one, but also being exposed to smoking in the house or smoking in the close vicinity of the baby, in addition to sleeping on the tummy. Yeah. Other risk factors include premature birth, being small for gestational age, meaning that the baby is smaller than they should be. Things to be aware of that are not a risk factor, that are sometimes counted as a risk factor. Having issues with your vital signs at birth or having low APGAR scores is actually not a risk factor for SIDS. Having what is called apnea of prematurity. A lot of parents worry if they have premature babies. We spoke about late preterm babies in a previous episode. These babies can have pauses in breathing until a certain stage and they stop. Parents should rest assured knowing that the occurrence of those in the early few days is not a risk factor for SIDS. And I think a lot of parents think that it is. The ones that we are important, especially in the kind of postnatal period after a baby is born, is sleeping prone, so sleeping on your tummy, and the sleep environment. And that's why I suppose we're talking about what we're talking about today. So having soft sleeping surfaces, loose bedding, fluffy pillows, and overheating can be a significant issue. Oftentimes you see parents, you know, putting three or four layers on a baby thinking that they're going to get cold. And I think just to say on that, because like a lot of us are living in houses now that are obviously a lot warmer. It's more just dressed to your environment. So like we can't change the temperatures in our house, but we have to remember, we have to look at the infant. And I suppose in the early stages, the very newborn, cold hands and feet, we know we're normal, but parents then think, oh my God, is the baby warm enough? So then they put on extra layers. So it's just, uh, we're going to go through safe sleep, but obviously if you're like, when you're checking a baby's temperature, you're looking at their core temperature. So hand down on the chest or the back of the neck, not their hands and feet and just no hats in the house. Yeah, that's a very good point. Another two things that aren't risk factors. Actually getting a chest infection is not a risk factor. I didn't even know that was down. Yeah, some people think that it is. So it's not, uh, I'm not saying that it's down here in my list, but it's down as definitely not a risk factor. Oh yeah. And the other important one is vaccinations, immunizations are not a risk factor either. So that's a very important thing to do. We are going to list or talk briefly about the safe sleep practices, but what, what I wanted to bring up before that is let's be realistic. A lot of parents do bed share. Yep. Right. And I can't lie to say that I didn't either. So I think a lot of parents do bed share and then they will say, well, you know, am I going against the safe sleeping advice? Technically you are, but realistically, if 
the other risk factors aren't there, meaning that you're not smoking, especially if you're sharing because you are breastfeeding, if there is no overheating, if there is no loose blankets around you, if there is no loose bedding around you, then there are guidelines for safe co-sleeping that people can look up. And, you know, although a lot of um, uh, official bodies will still say back to sleep in their own cot, sometimes bed sharing is a realistic thing that a lot of parents do. What do you think? Absolutely. I think we can always, we try to do our best to follow, I suppose, regulations and what's advised. But there are some instances where we'll end up going outside of that. And at least once we follow as as many of those as possible, in our, especially with our safe sleep and the seven co-sleeping guidelines, then we don't get rid of, like, there's always going to be a small chance that it may happen, but it's reduced significantly. And we particularly see it with these, with a breastfeeding infant, because we know that reduces the incidence as well. Um, the risk, not the instance. So look, I mean, I can definitely say my first and second, I probably didn't, but it was easier for me in them. They were easier to put down. My third and fourth were very different. And my fourth, I'm yeah. not going to lie. He he practically moved in after a few months. Yeah. So that's important to highlight. The other thing that it's important to highlight is don't use your the baby's car seat for your baby oh, yeah. sleep routine. You only use it for travel and don't use it as a sleeping aid for your babies. Um, and we'll be talking about this anyway in another one when it comes to uh, flat heads and yeah. carefully, we see an awful lot more babies with issues um, yeah. with head shape. Uh, absolutely. And finally, before we talk about the safe sleeping practices, um, there is no scientific evidence, as we spoke about last week, for that home monitors reduce the risk of, yeah. of, of SIDS. So I think that's important to re-emphasize here. Yeah, absolutely. So Katie, this brings us to the safe sleeping tip. So what are the do's and don'ts of safe sleep? So baby in their own crib, feet to the end, blankets tucked crib. in. Crib. Are we in America? We say crib. Why, what do you say? Cot. Well, generally speaking, when they're really small, it's going to be a crib. It's a smaller Is it not form. always a cot? God, I should know this. I'm a neonatologist. I don't know. I always say crib and then cot when they're bigger. Well, now there's, we'll open that up to the public. I don't know. I always say crib, Moses basket, whatever okay, they're sleeping. Fine. Sleep in we'll fire. Stick, we'll so we'll with start with, we'll go back. Feet to the end of the sleep environment, wherever they're sleeping. Okay. okay the cot. Cot. Blankets tucked in, hands up above. No hats to be worn in the house. If you're wondering about whether they're hot or cold, as I said, use your hand placed on their chest or on the back of their neck to find are they warm enough. When it comes to it, no blankets, no teddies, no extra paraphernalia within the crib, cot environment. If you are using any of the sleep bags, then just make sure that they are age and weight appropriate. So if you have a newborn, you do not want to be using a three month old if it does not fit, because obviously then the baby has the ability to go down within the neck opening or the arm opening. So just to be careful. So no toys, nothing like that. The baby does not sleep in, if you are co-sharing, co-bed sharing, you do not sleep with the infant if anyone has taken alcohol or drugs or I suppose are with are, we hope that if we're we're not smoking in the environment of the sleep area. Yeah, and that really is a big don't. So if as much as you can or please don't do not smoke and keep your baby and keep place keep your baby away from smoking. Even secondhand smoke yeah. can be, and I was uh, can actually, be an issue. 
I was only speaking about that actually with a client there yesterday in that they were saying that they're the, one of the grandparents, the father's parent actually smokes and how can they, you know, speak to the parent and not upset him, but they really want to put it across. They don't want them handling the baby directly after. And what's recommended is that if you have a cigarette, you don't handle baby for 30 minutes after you wash your hands. And if you can wear an outside garment or wear a different jumper so that when you take it off, you don't have the smoke um, obviously stuck. So it's very yeah. like passive smoking. If you lift baby up and you have them connected while uh, you're still wearing the same um, clothing. Yeah. And another thing that um, people sometimes don't think about is the condition of the mattress. It needs to be clean, firm and without any rips. And it should also fit the cot because sometimes if there is a gap between the mattress and the edges of the cot, the babies could potentially slip into that. And we see that a lot with the travel cots. Sometimes you'll buy the travel cot and there's just a hard surface. It doesn't actually have the mattress. So then you purchase the mattress afterwards and it often doesn't fit. So even within a hospital or within a hotel setting, if that is the case that they bring up a travel cot and the mattress doesn't fit, then actually they shouldn't provide it because it's not a safe sleep environment. Um, If you have your second, third or fourth child, then yes, you can use the same cot, but just maybe consider getting a new new mattress for it. Yeah. And then um, finally, I suppose, just to reiterate, avoid pillows and cushions in your baby's cot and sleep positioners or other similar products such as nests, cocoons, pods, wedges. They're not really recommended for your baby. No. And um, finally, any soft objects, loose or fluffy teddy bears. I know they make things look really cute. And, you know, give you the image of a comfy, happy baby. Avoid having these in the cot. Any kind of loose objects, fluffy objects can increase the risk of suffocation. Absolutely. Great. So I think we've covered most of the issues with safe sleep. And if you want any further information, you can always refer to the HSE website that has really good, clear instructions on safe sleep. So moving on to our guest. I know you say you're excited before every guest, uh, but I know you're particularly excited about Paula McSweeney because you are um, a bit of a fan. I am. I've got a total girl fan on Paula McSweeney. Um, I have listened to her and followed her um, for many years now. So I was super trumped to have her join me. Before you introduce her, you know, when she first came into the house for the interview, she literally walked right past me to give you a massive big hug. And I'm kind of standing there going, Hello. <laughs> Thank you, Paula, for that. So she was actually really happy to see you as well. Yeah, yeah well, we're kind of like, I, I say we're like Insta friends. We've never met before, but we're like friends on Instagram. Yeah, you were chatting as if you knew each other for years and years and years. It was very funny. She's fabulous. Yeah. Um. So Paula McSweeney is originally from County Kilkenny and is one of eight children. Wow. God love her. her mother must be some incredible woman. She is a radio broadcaster who is also a qualified librarian, which I only found out today. She is a master's in library and information studies from UCD and a Bachelor of Arts degree from uh, UCC, English and French. Paula has worked across various shows on Today FM since 2011 and although is currently on mat leave, will return to her evening show next month, Sunday to Thursday, 7 to 10 p.m. So tune in. Paula lives in North County Dublin with her husband Aidan and their three children, Roddy, who's almost five, Pixie, who's three, and Mac, gorgeous Mac, is just turned one. Paula has recently won a sea swimming race in June this year and would like everyone to know. Excellent. So let's get on with the interview. Paula McSweeney, we have you here today to join us. So how about you tell us a little bit about your career to date? Of course. Um, so I've been in radio for, God, about 12 years and I worked in TV before that behind the scenes. Um, I've been 
presenting, I think, just about every show on Today FM at some point. And at the moment I work evenings, but I'm on maternity leave at the moment. So I'm going back full time at the end of the month. Um, I'm also a qualified librarian. Yeah, I know. It's, I have a master's in library and information studies from UCD. Wow. And yeah, it's, do you know, it's kind of the same thing. I know it sounds much nerdier, but like a radio DJ and a librarian kind of it's it's not a million miles apart from each other. I know a lot of people go, no, 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 no. But actually a friend of mine who's a librarian did an entire entire thesis on how they're actually the same thing. So it's quite cool. Um, but that's a different matter. I also have um, a degree in English and French from UCC as well. So I have a little bit of everything, but uh, radio is what I've settled on thus far in my career. And I love it. Wow. Yeah. And more importantly, you are a mother of three. Yes, I am. I have an almost five-year-old, a just-turned-one-year-old and a just-turned-three-year-old. So all my three are October babies. Um, you timed that well. Honestly, <laughs> January, every second year was like, oh, I'd love another baby. And we were very lucky. We and and had did, did you list them in the order of who's most favourite? Because I see you left the middle child till the very end. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was her birthday only yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind. So oh, she got last. She yeah. shares a birthday with my eldest. Does she? Yeah. It's a good day. The it fifth, is. it's a good day. Yeah. And tell us this. So if you think back to when you had your very first mm. little baby, uh, did you feel prepared? I thought I was. I remember my consultant in the Rotunda saying to me, you should do an antenatal course. It's really important um, because we were two people who like we'd held a baby now and again, but we knew nothing about it. Um, we got married a few months beforehand and like we kind of got married to have a family. I know you don't need to do it that way, but we wanted to yeah. commit to each other before. But having a family was the big thing. So we were really lucky and um, almost immediately, well, immediately <laughs> fell pregnant. And um, I thought we were prepared. We did all the antenatal classes um, probably I did a, a hypnobirthing class. So, you know, I was going to like breathe my baby out under a tree or something like that. I ended up having a C-section, which is totally <laughs> fine. Um, but I, I, yeah, when I look back, because I was so like, I'm going to have a natural birth with absolutely no pain relief. Um, I'm definitely going to breastfeed. Uh, so I had all this in my head and then I ended up having a C-section, which to be honest, I didn't really pay attention in the class to the C-section part because I was like, well, I'm not having a C-section. And I did have a C-section. Um, so I, I remember thinking, uh, I wish I knew, no, I wish I knew more about this and the recovery and all that because I had kind of all tailored my, my birth towards something, which I know as professionals, you're going, yeah, it's a common mistake, but a lot of us do that. And did you find it hard then to transition when the birth didn't go the way you planned? Not at all. That's the weird thing. Like, I, I, I really do. Like, I love hearing birth stories. I love when a woman tells me that she had the exact birth she wanted. Like, she, she went in and everything went to plan and she, she did have the natural birth. I love hearing that and I'm really excited for her. Um, and a part of me goes, God, I wish I could have done that. But I had just three lovely births and yeah. they were surgical births, but they were calm and they were beautiful. And that moment, we never found out as far as we're going to be boys or girls. So that moment was, oh, if I could bottle that feeling of joy, like it was just, it was a really all three. So you didn't want to know the no. sex of your babies. Oh, no. that's interesting. Because yeah. you did a betcha, Fief. Well, absolutely. We had to know everything about everything, but that's just us being freaks. But um, but even you could read an ultrasound. Surely, like, there was no way you couldn't know. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a neonatologist, so although sometimes if it's, you know, staring you in the yeah. face, yeah. You, you can't miss you it. You could tell you can't miss it. Yeah. You could tell, ah, oh, a boy. But sometimes, you know, they call it the burger sign for a girl. It can be yes. hard to actually identify. But it's just an interesting in the era where information is so readily available to mm. everybody at any time that you guys chose actually to keep that element of surprise. So that's lovely. That's why. 
I think it, there's no surprise. It's the unknown. It, 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 that's it. Everything we can find out everything immediately. There's no like I must ask that person. You just Google it. You know, yeah. there's no surprises. There's no waiting. And I think a lot of people were surprised just because of my personality. My husband's really calm and patient. I need to know, but that was the one thing that I didn't. But and we were sure the first was going to be the girl. And she he came out. Boy, it was like it was a surprise. It was just like. <gasps> And it was amazing. And I'm really glad we had that feel. It was just magical. Really we didn't was. find out now in ours, except the last when it got to the fourth, I was like, oh, I kind of really want to know because we'd thrown out everything. So after the third, we were like, we're done. We're throwing out yeah. everything. So we gave everything away. <laughs> and then surprise, uh, which I was delighted with. Anyway, I was quite happy. to. I always in my head thought I was going to have four. Yeah. So I was so okay. chuffed. But we actually, on the fourth, I was like, will I, won't I, will I? But I'm actually, I have to say, I was so glad. But yeah. I have friends and they all went down the route of they had to know, they had to have prepared, had to feel prepared. So it's interesting. On, and on that preparedness, mm-hmm. once... What did you feel or what surprised you the most in the early periods, if you remember going back to your first, while you were in hospital? Um, you know, I know this is going to sound bizarre, but you know, when you see on TV someone who's just had a baby or you might visit friends who've just had a baby and you go and their baby is asleep in a bassinet in the corner and everything is just sort of, you know, calm. My baby, were my none of my babies were like that. My babies were attached to me pretty much 24-7, latched to me or on my chest. I couldn't put them down. Or they, they just were uncomfortable when they were left alone. Um, and I remember thinking, like, where's the village? Like, where do I put it? Like, I need to go for a shower. I need to, you know, and I, that surprised me that the sheer, um, I suppose, it was just really intense, the intensity of it. Because although I needed to have a shower sometimes, I didn't want to give them to anyone else. You know, I, yeah. especially my first, my first, I'm like, I was mental. I was like, have you washed your hands? You know, it, honestly, everything was a real, you know, well, you have given this tiny baby and, you know, you felt like you you've just to gone to war and you're told, like, go home and look after this tiny child. It, it was incredible. But um, <clears throat> the fact that, um, yeah, it wasn't a case where you just put, I had a next to me beside our bed and like, never went there for decoration. Like he just, he just didn't settle in there ever. You know, it took, I'd say four or five months for him to actually get a sleep where I wasn't either pushing him the pram or feeding him to sleep or on my chest. And that's something that I, I, I didn't realize was a thing, and it was certainly a thing for all of my t- three children. I remember thinking, no one told me this. No one told me that this could be. You know, I thought there was something wrong, or maybe I was over because my mom is a different generation, and she's like, oh well, you're making a rod for your own back. You need to put him down and leave him. And he's a newborn. I can't. Like my, my heart would break. So that's one thing. The TV and films, like they do not show. A, they do not depict True life. an accurate portrait of what it might yeah, be like. You bring up a really interesting point that we were hoping to touch on at some stage during our podcast is the media depiction of everything to do with baby, mm-hmm. how you deliver your baby. It's, yeah. it's usually depicted as a mother screaming and shouting um, for the baby to come out. Yes, that might happen, but a lot of deliveries, as you said, can be completely a different experience. Babies that, you know, are put down and only kind of do a little bit of a squeak when they're hungry and then you get to feed them and it's a beautiful, easy thing and then you get to put them down and they're asleep for another three hours. I think media does have a lot to answer for the kind of false depiction of how babies behave, how things happen over the first few um, weeks and you've described it very well in that what you describe is actually what is the more normal normal <laughs> that's it and what is the more common scenario and babies want to stay close to their mothers babies want to be held babies i've, I've heard a really great quote uh, sometime last year saying a baby's habitat is their mother's body they actually want to be mm. close to their moms and you're not spoiling them by yeah. doing that you're not making them more dependent down the line and all of these things have actually been kind of debunked you know well you know it's that thing if 
they say babies are manipulative. They don't have the cognitive ability no. to be manipulative. They just want to cuddle, you know, and that's, and it can be overwhelming at the start. It certainly can because you do need to have a shower or, you know, you're like your insides aren't right. You know, you just, you know, might need some privacy now and again and you can't, you don't know, you know, and how to survive. You don't know how to survive it. And you do get there and there's a lot of tears and a lot of tantrums, not from baby. You will get there, but like the glamorous side that the TV and, me, and the media shows is is not actually what it looks like a lot of the time. I'm but sure if, it does for some. If you even look at like on Instagram, you see these um, reels with babies sound asleep and they've that lovely music in the background and they just have this beautifully clean hand. If they look at reality, most of them have vomit down, you know, yeah. spit ups and, you know, it's not as glamorous. And I also, I really used to hate the expression, oh, I slept like a baby last night. So yeah. you're telling me that <laughs> every you, woke man up, does. you woke up every, no, well, if I say I slept like a baby, I assume that you woke up every two hours. <laughs> you, went down and, you went down and had a feed, you know, every two hours, went to the bathroom three times like that was a terrible sleep if you slept like a baby you know that's very true actually especially my babies and another thing is you know you you might find support groups of other women they can be a little um negative at times because you might think well my why isn't my baby or because you'll always get the woman who well mine slept through from two weeks and you're going well, if you you look if you look at the study sorry to cut you off Mm. they are 90 percent likely to be lying yeah okay (laughs) yeah now, look, there'll always be the occasional child that will go against majority and will actually sleep really well. But that doesn't mean that that's transferable to every other. I, rem- I remember the first time um, my eldest slept for more than two hours at night and I woke up and I got such a fright. <gasps> yeah. Where is he? What's you wrong? You poke. Yeah. And you're like, is he alive? And, and it had probably only been three hours, but he had been literally attached to me for about two months. But And it was that fright and then that... Okay, that was a stretch. Now, if I only got two and a half hours sleep in the night, I'd be like a bear. But when you're in the zone, you can get, you can do yeah. it. You're, you know, and look, at we know we're having babies. We know we're not going to be sleeping every night. It's the culmination of if everything, the, the birth. And, you know, after a few weeks, you know, that high has come down and you start going, oh my God, I need some sleep. I just need a little block of just sleep. And you, you want to lie flat because a lot of the time you're sitting up and you're just, you forget like, oh, it's just, it's crazy. I think the early days you kind of, well, for me, I always thought because I was in it, I kind of knew that it was going to be short lived or I get to the end. But when it starts going on a little bit longer than you imagine, like when you get into the months and you're going, oh, I am so sleep deprived. How can I keep functioning? I really feel for women going back to work. And when babies are still waking, because they can, as yeah. they normally do. And that's a really tough transition. Yeah, like going in and pretending that, you know, you're ready for a day's work when you've been up every hour of the night. Oh, my God. It's hard enough on maternity leave when you don't have to go in. You know, you're, you're finding it hard to even get to the shops or even leave the house. But having to go in and do paid employment, it's... it's I nice. mean, we used to do a 24-hour shift in the hospital on call. And I always used to equate having a newborn as just be doing that, but every night. Like we used to do it maybe, you know, once every three, once every four nights. Yeah. And you'd be wrecked for the two days and barely recover two days later before you have to do it again. But as a mom, you're literally on call as you are in a hospital, awake, nonstop. So, and, and it's, it's amazing how you can somehow function and survive. You well, know? I, I do remember my mom and my sister kind of staging a bit of an intervention um, I think my eldest was about three weeks old at the time and, you know, the natural high had kind of gone and I was literally just, I, I need needed nearly to put matchsticks in my eyes to keep them open and I hadn't had any sleep and they, they rang me and they said, listen, you need to feed, 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 feed this evening and then give the baby to Aiden and give three hours. Baby won't starve in three hours. He'll walk around. He can bring him out in the book. You can put him on his chest, whatever. You need three uninterrupted hours. And they then they, they said the thing that really got to me, which was, 
your supply will drop if you don't. I went, well, I'm definitely going to be breastfeeding forever. So, okay. So I did that, did that, did that, G- gave the baby over, lay down, fell, fell fast asleep, woke up and nearly died of the fright. Where's my baby? Where's my baby? And I ran downstairs, Aiden, where's the baby? And I went in and uh, he was asleep on Aiden's chest. And Aiden was like, he's here. And I said, oh my God. And Aiden said, you've only been asleep for 20 minutes. <laughs> like, oh, I, literally, I had gone mad. I had just gone. And even with my subsequent two babies, I've never been that sort of pa- panicked. You know, it it does settle. But at the start, it is hard because because of the sleep deprivation, because of the terror of this tiny baby that you're in charge of, you know, it's 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 everything. But yeah, I think it's like I think it's actually more the transition to motherhood that is such a huge transition in a woman's life and a parent's life. Yeah, it does. And I think when you have a second, third or fourth, because you've already experienced it, it's not as traumatic or as I so frightening at times. But that very first, like what you explained, I suppose I had my first before my sister and she had her next then um, kind of two, I think two years later, our, our seconds came together very close. And I was um, on my first, he was one of those babies, just slept really well. I put him down, he went to sleep, woke back up, went five, six hours. He was like literally if you bought him off a, a shop shelf. Yeah. Second came along, I presumed he'd be, she'd be the same. No, absolutely, completely different. My sister had hers first um, before Lily was born. And I remember ringing me in absolutely sheer panic. She'd come home from the hospital. She's like, something wrong with the baby. Won't stop crying. I don't know what to do. I was like, calm down. But she was so sleep deprived. She had literally stayed awake for three, four full days. And she said she will never forget that transition where she was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And it was sheer sleep deprivation like. And it does. I, it, without trying to belittle it, it does send you a bit mad. Yeah. Like it does. Like, see, you know, it, it's a form of torture. And then mix in all those emotions and all those hormones and, and everything. And it's just, it's a recipe for, it could be a recipe for and disaster. Especially, and we've, we've mentioned this mm. on the pod before. You're experiencing all of this after having surgery. Yes. Whereas most people are recuperating after a surgery and people do their best to, you know, leave them alone and let them recover. Yeah. You all of a sudden have a human to look after. Plus, as you said, you have to be moving around within 24 hours and do everything you need to do in order to care for the child. Whereas most other people, they get surgery, rest and do nothing. But your workload doubles after the surgery. So all these things put together, it's no wonder that it's a traumatic time because both of you use the the, the word traumatic. In a nice sense, but yeah. No, but I mean, not, not to deem motherhood in a negative way, yeah. but, but on yourself, it is yeah, it is a trauma. Yeah. It, is, it, it, it totally is, you know, and, and that recovery isn't easy. And like that, it's transitioning into motherhood, looking after another human. Whereas if I'd had that surgery on its own without having to do that, I, you know, you'd, you'd hope that people would be looking after you, you know, yep. <laughs> you know, but actually you're the one looking after like it's, and I know we all know this, but until you're in it, you, it's, a, before I had children, I never would have given it a second thought. Grand women have been doing it for years. Yeah, and we're bloody amazing. <laughs> but you know what? I think you even said, where's the village? Because years yeah. ago, if you look at our parents' generation, they would have all had the neighbours, they had family, friends all around them all the time because most women at that stage were at home yeah. in some capacity. Yeah. Whereas now most of us, like you wave at your neighbours and yeah. you don't really know them until you have your kids and the kids start right in the road together. So you kind of wave and they think, but then suddenly you're at home. And I see a lot of mothers after they have their babies and they have that support. The house is lonely. Their yeah. partners go back to work and they're like, oh my God, I'm on my own. With this that actually person. suited me, I have to say. Like I, uh, I sounds it sounds terrible, doesn't it? Like a, the pandemic was a blessing for when I brought a newborn home. A lot because, of mums actually do mm, say that. I know it sounds a lot. Of, a lot of mums hated it because they felt lonely. I loved it because for me, 
I, I don't know, maybe I should have been born billions of years ago because I loved that time when I brought my baby home and I just wanted to be left alone. I wanted to feed. Yeah. I wanted to be in bed with my feet up feeding and just being left alone. I didn't want to make tea. I didn't want to hello to anyone. I didn't want to give my baby cuddles to anyone else. Like all I needed was my baby. All my baby needed was me. I'm very, I was really weird about that. Whereas I had friends who were out shopping and going for coffee and granny would mind the baby. And I'm like... It's my idea of hell. Like, I just wanted to be left alone with my baby. And um, so when the pandemic happened, nobody knocked on the door. It was brilliant. But I would say, I'd love to see the research. I think breastfeeding rates probably went up in some capacity in the pandemic because so we, they went longer. We, lo- we looked at the, um, well, we looked at it just in the hospital setting, actually, and it didn't impact it negatively anyway. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of uh, anecdotal report from the community that breastfeeding rates did actually go up during the pandemic. Is they are slowly yeah. going up in Ireland anyway. But I found, they good? Yeah, I found in my practice, I would have seen an awful lot more at the other end going, I, they wanted to stop, they're going back to work. Mm. But they had never planned on going that long. But because it just worked, they mm. were at home, they'd no, they had nowhere to go. Yeah. So they were quite happy to go me. longer. Yeah. yeah, my middle child. I, I breastfed her for nine months. Now, she wouldn't take a bottle. I, even though I wanted her to get off the boob, I had stuff to do and I had enough at that point. Yeah. She's biting me all the time and I just had enough. Um, but like that, I was like, oh, just look, I've nowhere else to be this time. Yeah. You know, may as well just... And it was, it was lovely. You know, I look back and I wish I hadn't put so much pressure on myself to to move on, you know, but like that, it's easy in hindsight yeah. to look back. So, so on that, and you did mention that briefly, is did number two and number three, was it easier next time around? Because yeah, totally. you had C-sections for all three. So yeah. did you feel that things got better and easier to manage? Even the recovery. I think no matter how you have your first baby, it is just like, you, like I said, you feel like you've gone to war and they've handed you a baby and sent you home and you're like, oh my God. But you're kind of, you, you expect it for the second one and you did de- like my third, even the recovery from the C-section was so quick. It was like my first one, I was in bits. I, I just, I couldn't stand up straight. I found walking difficult. But my third, I walked out of the hospital going, yeah, okay, I'm a little bit sore and I, you know, I have to look after myself. But everything about it was just easier. Also, um, I was very sick after my first C-section. All the medication I got, the anesthesia and all that made me really, really sick. All night. Same with my second one. By my third one, the anesthesia team came to me and said, we've had a look at your notes. We're going to actually give you different stuff. Dreamy. I, I wasn't sick. I was able to, you know, I was able to hold my baby and feed my baby without going, oh God, help, help. Uh. Do you, you, know, do you so remember Ill. the anesthetist by any chance? I mentioned him on it on Instagram. He's lovely. He said, look, and actually this head anesthetist, which I thought, yeah. which I thought was really nice, actually, um, the second day post-surgery, um, post-delivery, he came to to see me in the rotunda f- and asked me, you know, he was like, we're, we're actually just asking women how they feel everything went. Would you change anything? How did you feel? And I thought, that's really cool. Like, I'd never really heard of that before. And I couldn't have been happier because I didn't spend the night vomiting and, and itching. Oh, I was so itchy after my first They're getting well. really good at managing all of that yeah. post-C-section symptoms. Yeah, yeah, so it's great. You are obviously well known on, on radio and in the media. And did you feel that the time that you took off minding your babies, did you feel that had an impact on your professional career? Um, I have to say no, because I, my career will always be there in some capacity. Um, and I understand women in general kind of feel like promotions might be impacted, even though it's never said you can't. Um, but for me, the most important thing, because I had my babies in my 30s, you know, I have built my career. And the most important thing to me was to be there for my baby. Um, I'm lucky in that I can do a bit of freelance work while on maternity leave once, you know, if I go on unpaid maternity leave, which is what I did, you know, kept my toe in the water, you know, kept kind of, you know, I was still there, but I was still mostly at home with my baby. So personally, it didn't. I, I don't feel like it did. Maybe there's, you know, old bosses of mine going, well, little you know, but I never <laughs> knew about it. So I was happy, you know. And do you struggle with the work-life balance? Because I know as women, we often, 
you know, it's trying to be there for your family, yeah. but also to progress. Like, did you, when you're in the throes back at work, do you struggle? Like, do you find anything's particular? Um, I have to say because of my hours, my hours when I went back with my first were early morning. So I wasn't there in the morning to get him up and get him out to crash, but I was there for the rest of the day. And I'm really lucky. Not a lot of women have that. I had that perfect balance of being able to work and being there. Now I was wrecked a lot of the time, but I take take that over, you know, the cost and the emotional cost of of leaving him all day long. So I had that. I did find it hard going back to work the first time. Um with and I, I debated on whether to mention this, but I think it's important to mention and it's important to stress as well. I don't work for the same company, but there was a few issues around uh maternity laws, which I had to get really firm about. I had to go off and get expensive professional help because um, things weren't really managed very well. Again, not where I'm working at the moment. Um, And it was really stressful and really, really um, isolating, I felt. So that side of it, I thought was really, really difficult. It was sorted out because thankfully, maternity laws are enshrined into employment law in Ireland. Thankfully, there's no ambiguity. It is what it is. Um, But I found that really difficult. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because the woman who helped me said to me that she gets multiple calls a week from women and they all start in the same way, which is, I'm sorry if I cry, but, and that's exactly what happened to me. I rang and went, I'm sorry if I cry, but I've just gone back to work and something's happened. And she said, it's the exact same. It's nearly like a template they ring because employers aren't aware or if they are, they don't care that it is really important that women are treated with respect, dignity and understanding when they go back to work. And more importantly, they go back to the exact job, if not better than the one they left. It's really important because we need to keep women in the workforce. We need to, and we need women to know that, you know, it's unfortunately quite common, but it is not acceptable. So I, I think it's really important. And also my workplace at the moment, um, my last two pregnancies, dreamy, so supportive, been absolutely brilliant. But I do want women to know that um, you're not on your own. And, you know, I know it's really Making that phone call would be hard. Like I'm lucky. One of my close family members works in, he's he's a practicing, he works in law. And like, I had someone to ask. I didn't have to pay for it. Yeah. I didn't have to go, well, who do I ask? Or who who's going to back my, who's going to fight my corner? I had someone on top for free who went, okay, well, look, this is really easy actually, because this is not acceptable. It's against the law and not everyone has that. But it really is like the WRC is there for a reason and they're there to help if you're in that position going back to work. Nobody should feel like that going back to work after having a baby ever. Yeah, so, well, well said. Um, yeah. And, and it's, an, it's an amazing example of you actually advocating for yourself to, yeah. to, to, to get what is actually rightfully yours. And what people forget as well is in the line of work that I do, I spend a lot of time with women that have had young babies and often maybe after having two or three in succession in such a short period of time where they haven't returned to work for maybe, let's say, a few years, mm. they, at the end of it, often look back to that time and feel that, God, I've achieved nothing in the last three years. God, I've, what have I done? I'm, I'm standing still. Everybody's going ahead. And then people forget, or, or maybe the mum herself forget, you didn't do nothing. Mm. You raised three children. That is one of the hardest things to do that anybody can actually do. Um, you know, putting all the jobs that people may be able to do together. It's one of the hardest things. And I don't think society give enough credit Two mums yeah. that take time out of what we call as traditional work mm. to raise people. That's, it's essential for our survival as humans. And it's an essential role that let's, let's be honest, women do far 
better than men and it needs to be acknowledged and celebrated and to anybody that's listening that feels that gosh I've been on mat leave for two years I've done nothing you haven't done nothing and it's easier to go out to work you were doing the real oh, hard job yeah. at home I mean even even as a dad I used to joke because we used to do these crazy back then thankfully they're not as common anymore you know 24 36 hour shifts mm. on the trot and even me as a dad I used to look forward yeah. <laughs> to going to hospital for 36 hours away from a screaming child yes. that and is I've three warm months cup of old coffee. and then coming back. And so it was easier to yeah. do that than actually raise a child, you know? Yeah, it's tough. And it's really nice to hear other professionals saying this. And it's really nice to hear it from a male perspective because it is so true. Like, and I know there's a lot of people out there who roll the eyes and go, well, what did we ever do before? But it's really important to keep women in the workforce and they want yeah. to be, in, and, and most families need to have, a, you know, two income. A lot of families need yeah. that as well. Um, and so it's really important to highlight that. And it, like, it is much, much, that's why I've been going back kind of freelance um, now and again, because it's much easier to go in to yeah. the office than yeah. it is to stay at home on some days. And on, on the, what did we do before? I think it was a lot easier before you had your village. Yes. Yeah. I don't you had your neighbors. You yes. had, yeah, yeah. You had your village. I don't think the village is as easy to get yeah. as, as it is. It's I mean, not there. It's, you know, grandparents are, are great, but not everybody lives near their yeah. grandparents. An example to give is ourselves, myself and my wife. My parents live in Kuwait, you know, mm -hmm. 3000 miles away. Her family live in Mayo. So we were on our own with very little outside support. So you really feel the isolation now, whereas, yeah. you know, even 20 years ago, I think it was a lot easier, not easier, but you had a lot more support, I think. Yeah. I think so, you, if you think of it as well, like grandparents are getting older. So like, because we're having kids later, our generation ahead of us are a little bit older and they don't have the capacity or the ability totally. to take on full-time care now, Look, whereas years ago they would have. I'm 37 and I'm seventh out of eight children. So my parents are They're well into their seventies. I wouldn't even ask them. It's no. not fair. They've, no. first of all, they've raised their own children and second of all they're just I wouldn't do it to them I wouldn't do it to my own kids either because yeah. it's just it's, it's you want them to be there for the to the enjoy them exactly. yeah so like take them and spend time with them I don't really want them caring for them yeah. like okay if we're really stuck in fairness my parents will step up but for the majority yeah. we don't rely on them for childcare. so yeah. seeing as it's October it's okay to say the c word is Christmas chaotic oh my in, in your household with seven it's, with seven or eight siblings it's yeah. funny because um, like I'm the like everybody I think there's is it 20, did Mac make it 24 nieces and nephews? There's literally 12 and 12, 12 boys, 12 girls. It's mad. So we all have families now and we kind of have to schedule in our visits to mom and dad because we can't all descend, descend. upon the family home. It would be mental. Um, but yeah, it is. And it's good crack. And it's lovely to see all the cousins together as well. It's and are yours the youngest? Um, my sister is actually expecting in February. Uh, so she's, yeah. And I, who knows, she might, but she's, I'm definitely done. My older ones are definitely, my older siblings are definitely done. My younger sister, this is her second, who knows? So there could be one or two more, but oh, yeah. It's exciting. It is really exciting and it's lovely. It's it's just, it, we, we're from a big family. So it's lovely to see, you know, all the nieces and nephews and the cousins. It's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Did being a mom change your management style and leadership style at work? 100%. It changed me profoundly in so many different ways. I find myself, I've always been quite, um, I would say I have a lot of empathy, but I've been a very sensitive person. This is, but at the same time, I kind of shoot from the hip. You know, I might be a bit cutting now and again, a bit sarcastic. I have definitely paired all that back. Um, certainly in person, definitely online. I always just think of my own children. I think that's somebody loves them as much as I love my kids. And if anybody said anything mean or 
or that I would perceive as um, unkind. I just wouldn't want to be, I, w- I don't want to make other people feel how I don't want to make someone to make my children feel. It really, really, really gets to me. And it means that I don't crack the jokes anymore because I was like, maybe it wasn't very nice. It might be funny, but it's not very nice. Would I like someone to say that about me? No. So um, maybe it's turned me into someone really boring. I don't know, but it has totally changed how I look at other people even people I don't particularly like somebody else loves them more than anything you know and you want you know you don't, I don't want to be the reason someone goes home and feels bad about themselves ever so definitely has given me um a more empathetic kind of outview in life um I I think timing is another thing and other people talk about like punctuality I've always been the world's most punctual person so that has never been an issue like I hate being late I hate waiting for I have no patience but I hate being late so that's always something I've been quite good at managing even with kids like I have to say like if I have to be somewhere at nine o'clock and I have to leave at eight like we'll be all at the door at 745 because someone will forget a shoe or God, someone I'm, gla- you know. I'm glad you were on time today Katie because sometimes <laughs> Katie can be I'm always <laughs> on time uh, always <laughs> I'm like ridiculous, but I've always been like that. But apart from that, like it's just I think how it, my approach, like how I think about people has definitely changed. Um, I just I feel like you know, everybody and if somebody is is rude to you or mean to you, as we all get online, I'm sure, or maybe in person work, I, I wouldn't so much get it in person, but a lot of it online. Like they say what you dislike in yourself, you despise in others. And, you know, some of the messages that I would get, I just think that's not about me. That's like that's. That's their issue. There's nothing to do with me. I have no impact in their life. And you kind of have to just let something slide and just, whereas before I'd have said probably something mean back, like, what what good is that going to do? Just ignore it and, or block them, you know, and move on with your day because I I don't want to be, I don't want, the world doesn't need any more negativity out there. So I'm not going to be part of that. And before I had kids, I wouldn't have thought that deeply about it, you know. It's it's a really good kind of, I suppose, real mommy view. Just let it pass and don't even, you know. Don't let it get to you. My mom would, my mom still says that to me when I, when I started this job and I used to get some awful things said to me that really hurt my feelings, which now I'm like, oh, for God's sake, who cares what that person thinks? But I say to my mom, look, and she'd go, ah, to hell with them. They'd love your job. And she's right. But I couldn't understand that until now I'm looking at my own children thinking I'm going to be saying that to them someday. Like, don't mind them. That's not about you. It's about them. But I think because you're so probably your profile is so well known um, and you're online, people have like they feel they can say whatever they want because you put yourself out there. Well, I deleted Twitter and I'm never going back because I found that just like insane how the things that people can say, get away with saying like really libelous stuff, really untrue stuff. But also like it, it to me, it's just it's not a nice space. And I just didn't want to be part of that anymore. I, I was basically giving people permission to find me and call me names that they wouldn't necessarily have a way of doing otherwise. So, you know, if I'm in work, we have a text number in work and you can get that and you have to expect that. And that's part of the job. I don't expect it in my personal life or if I'm just... Would you get abuse on those text messages? Oh, you would. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. But like, really? oh, yeah, for sure. Now, not like not all the time, but every now and again, like you'll get something really vicious. But like, it's not about me. Like yeah. you can change... You can change over and listen to something that you prefer to listen to, but you're choosing to listen to me. Like, that's kind of your own problem. Like, you know. I never get that, actually, when I see people making comments. I'm like, why don't you just unfollow somebody or just don't listen? Turn over the channel, yeah. like, if you're not interested. I listen to loads of stuff. Or I watch loads of stuff. I go, this is rubbish. And I turn over. Yeah. I don't go on Twitter going, you're running. Ricky Gervais, Ricky Gervais always um, puts it puts it perfectly. I remember him doing a doing a skit on on that very thing. It's it's akin to somebody um, looking at an advert for guitar lessons on a wall taking the number, phoning that number and say, I never asked for guitar yeah, lessons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. 
Exactly. Yeah, that is yeah. so good. It's, it's the like, what about me effect. Not everything yeah, is like, for you. This wasn't for you. Yeah. If you don't do guitar lessons. But even going back to breastfeeding, you know, I find it really, um, I find I can't really talk about it as much as I'd love to. Like I'm finished with it now. Anytime I've celebrated it and talked about truly, I didn't have a bad breastfeeding journey. I had a really natural, three natural feeders. I had no pain. It was exactly everything I dreamed of. I loved it. But as soon as I mentioned something like that, someone will go, well, I bottle fed and I was fine. And you go, well, good, but this is my story. You know, I'm not telling you that that's wrong or that's right. Or I had surgical births and you might have had a natural birth, which I would have loved. But I'm happy for you that you got, you know, like not everything is for you. We're very egotistical if we think that going online, every single thing we see has to be tailored exactly to our taste because everyone's experiences are different. And particularly with breastfeeding, ooh, it's a hot topic. I think it is both sides. I think breastfeeding and formula, like you're either against one or the other. It's kind of hard to be like people view it as you can't be impartial. Mm. Um, And I think it's really well said, like some I've had parents that want to talk about their breastfeeding journeys, but they feel that they're going to be shut down if they do. And likewise, people who decide to go on formula feed, they feel that they're going to be shut down by the other side. So it's really well, like, I think we just have to be more empathetic and open to listening to other people's stories and accepting of it. When they go to school, no one's going to say, how are you fed? Like, like, do you know what I mean? And it has to work for you and for baby for it to work. And, you know, there's help out there, but some people simply don't want to. And that's your own choice. Like, no one's going to push you into doing something you don't want to do. I always look at people who are struggling with breastfeeding and they really, they're not enjoying it. And I'm thinking, you know, if it's, if they've tried everything and it's not working, like the kindest thing you can kind of say to someone sometimes is it's okay to stop. Like, I've, it often, really is. I've often counseled mums um, that have come to see me really, really struggling and yeah. really at their, at their tether's end. And the only reason they're not stopping is that they are worried about their reaction from other people. Yeah. And isn't it crazy that, that, that they feel that amount of pressure to, con- to continue doing something they're not doing. And the way I break it down to them is. You're not doing anyone any good. You're not doing yourself exactly. good. You're not doing your baby yeah. any good because the baby needs a relaxed, happy mom to look after them. Yeah. So if that's all you're doing is feeding and not doing anything else, baby's not going to be as good as if you decided to formula feed exactly. and then give more time to doing other stuff for them. Isn't that the kindest thing you can say? And yeah. I, I think as well, coming from professionals, like another thing is, you know, I'm really on one now, but I don't know why people ask me questions about breastfeeding, you know, for advice. It's like, I'm not qualified. I'm not going to give you any advice because I'm, all I can talk about is my own um, experience. And I will do that to the cows come home if you ask, but I can't give you advice because I'm not qualified. My baby is my baby. My breasts do different things that yours might do. You know what I mean? I can't, I'm not educated enough. I'm not qualified enough. There's people, you know, like yourself and, and Fifa who, who can actually tell people, um, give them evidence-based facts. And I think the internet, that's where we're going wrong as well. There's a lot yeah. of people looking for information in the wrong places. Like, I'm not going to be, like, I, it must be frustrating as health professionals to have people coming to you saying, well, this girl online told me. <laughs> it is, fact, we it were, is we, so we were, common. We were only talking about that yesterday where people that don't have any medical training take up a very important baby topic and decide to become self-experts in yeah. it and start running classes and giving advice. And you're like, none of this is evidence-based. And some of the stuff they say on their page borders on dangerous. Yeah. And the problem is you can't challenge it because you don't want to be seen as adversarial. And our job, we feel, is that if you come to my page, you will get evidence-based advice. Yes. I can't comment on anything else that ha- happens outside my page. Yeah. But like when you were talking about the the breastfeeding thing, I think we as parents, we always have a bit of guilt. We always want to do the best. And I only had a mom there during the week who was breastfeeding fantastically. Like, Mm. I mean, if you looked at it from on a page, Mm. it was fantastic. She had no issues. Baby's gaining really well. 
But I was going, going out there going, why am I here? Like, I don't get it. And she just like started crying and she was just very open and said, I hate every bit of it. Ah. And I just went, why are you doing it? Yeah. Like, and she was like, well, I feel I should because I'm told that it's the best and everything else. I said, but the best is, I said, what works as a family. Yeah. I said, there is no point in you missing out on the early days of your child's life because you hate something so much. It breaks my heart because it's such an important time. It you know, is. Yeah. So like sometimes I think, I mean, there we're there to say, yes, breast milk is the optimum form of nutrition, but that doesn't mean it works for every single mother. And I was like, look, it is more important that you are enjoying your baby and enjoying this whole experience than doing something because you believe I should be doing it because of what others have told you. Mm. So I was like, look, just take a step back. But I think that's as mothers and parents, I'm sure we say as fathers as well and partners, that we all just want to do the best. We're so protective of our little ones when they're yeah. born that you just want the best for them. Yeah. But like that, people will jump onto Google. They look for what what's wrong with my baby. And sometimes, like you said earlier, I think that newborn experience where they wouldn't go down in the cot. But yeah. for what we perceive as that a baby should go back down and they sleep, well, then we can start classifying it as an issue or a medical problem. And this is where these so-called experts get mm. their platforms because they go, no, that is not right. And we can cure this by doing something else. And oftentimes it's not medically at all what you would go with. And but A lot of the time, like, I know for me, I just know now after having three, it's the biological norm to feed your baby they fall asleep, you put them down, they don't want to be down, you just have to hold them. Like, that's normal. It's intense. But I never saw, I never knew that that was actually kind of what, it, you know, it, you can swaddle them all you want. My, my Mine hated being swaddled. They wanted their handies free. Yep. Every, you know, it was just the way they were. And every baby is different, you know. I remember listening actually to, uh, I think it was doctor over, he was African. And in cultures over there in um, small communities, they've never heard the word of colic or reflux. Never. And I was like, what? I don't believe it. I honestly was so sceptical. And he said, because babies are never put down, they're carried by caregivers, a mother, they're a partner, a sibling yeah, on their chest all yeah. the time. Yeah. The baby never cries. Well, ra- like rarely yeah. cries except for looking for a feed or something. And I was like, really? But when you think of it, I'd say a large part of when we look at other issues is because of sometimes us trying to conform to what we believe as social norms. Yeah. Yeah. And I often sometimes get parents. I said often, sometimes, either <laughs> often or sometimes. I often actually get parents that say he'll only stop crying if I pick him up. And then you're like, well, that is actually normal baby behavior. There is yeah. nothing wrong with that. And again, we try and explain it with colic or reflux. And then there are remedies for colic and reflux. And then you start giving A, B, C, D. And then oftentimes we perceive that they worked because time has passed. And these things do improve with time as well. Mm. Babies don't need to be held as much as they grow older. And we then see, oh, look, I've given X and therefore things are better two months later. It's because of that rather than it naturally getting better. Do you think there's a lot of products like um, like medical medicine, over the counter stuff that's overprescribed or just used willy-nilly because I know I, I would have tried anything when because I thought there was something wrong he didn't have wind or anything he just wanted to be held so I was giving him like Infocol when we probably didn't need it he didn't have colic yeah. you know like I suppose when you go to somebody you do, they just want to help the person sitting in front of them and oftentimes like if you just it's like when a, if you go to the doctor and your kid has a viral infection a lot of parents are waiting for an antibiotic because they want something to be given to make this little person better And sometimes you just, depending on the situation, sometimes it's with time, these things improve. So like, I suppose if you think about a friend asks you for advice, you feel like you have to give it instead of sometimes just listening and letting that person vent. So these Infocol drops, the co-leaf drops, all these things. Yeah, I know. And I did it myself and it's only after I was going, he didn't even. Like it's not going to do them any harm, let's be honest. Like, 
to well, everyone you, using you them, anything. it doesn't do any harm. Yeah. But do they clinically work? I'd love yeah. to see all those really 100% firm <laughs> yeah. studies. Did, did you notice what's just after happening, Katie? I've we've, gone off on a tangent. No, we've I? become the interviewees. Oh. She slowly <laughs> transitioned to, to, to interviewing us um, for the last 10 minutes. No, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Don't get me wrong. But I just thought, see, this you know, is her profession. Postman's holiday. Yes. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So like, you know, and what do you think about this? And have you ever experienced this? And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Oh, no, thank you so much. Um, we've been chatting for a long time and we're cognizant of, of the very little time you have. We want to finish off by asking you if you have any advice for new parents that are embarking on a parenthood journey, particularly those that may be running their own business mm. and, you know, where their business kind of depends on them coming back. I think in the more than the punctuality thing, that's preparation. Preparation is key. When you're having a baby, do your antenatal class if you haven't, you know, ever been around babies much, but do it anyway and bring a partner. So you both kind of are on the same page and you know what to expect and um, do an antenatal class. And then just going back to work, prep, again, I don't know what it's like, you know, everywhere, but um, I was lucky that I could get my my babies into creche when they were one. But I know that's really difficult in some places. So start thinking about even before baby's born, where you want to go career wise, like where your baby's going to go while you're working. Um, and if it's possible, try and work from home. I know not everyone can do that, but if you could do that even one or two days a week, it'll make that return to work so much less stressful. Because the idea of nine to five, Monday to Friday, when you have this, you know, six month old, eight month old, one year old, that's a lot, you know. So try and, you know, I suppose minimize, you know, the stress factor of the the commute, um, where your baby's going to go. Preparation is key. That's literally all you can do. And sometimes, and I, I know this is going to sound so wishy-washy, but sometimes things are just out of your control and things will work out. Like I, things happened to me when I went back to work, like after, you know, the whole nonsense of going back to my, my job and all that was sorted out. I had an ectopic pregnancy, all that kind of happened around the same time. And it was really stressful. And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh my God, like life is just getting on top of me. Like what else is going to go wrong? But things do work out and, you know, bumps in the road will, you know, you'll overcome things and you'll think that life will never be the same again. It will. And the most important thing is a happy baby and happy parents. So once the three, you know, once your unit is happy and healthy, everything else will be fine. Everything else will be fine. Even if, you know, your job goes, you know, tits up, you know, even no matter what, as long as your family unit is okay, you will be fine. And do remember that it it is such such a brief period of time, like everything will be fine. That's my mantra now. My job can come or go, you know, my, my family is happy and healthy and you know, everything else. So well said. Everything else. Well said. And that's an amazing way to end today's episode. Paula, thank you so much for coming on. I want to see swimming race. Yeah. (laughs) We promised we'd bring that in. Yes, you did. And we did say that at the very start. Yes. Tell us, tell us briefly about that swimming race. Oh, just, uh, just, you know, I just, I'm so proud of myself after having three kids and I came last like two years ago. I I joined a race and I came last and I was like, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to, so I trained and trained and trained even when I was pregnant and everything. And this summer, and I didn't even know I'd won. I got out of the water and everyone was cheering and I thought they were cheering because I'd done it. And, I was like, and how, how far was it? About a kilometre. Oh, like, wow. Fair, fair play, Paula. That's well, amazing. Like it's, it, yes. well, I would have been a swimmer in my early year, in my youthful years, but um, it was only after I went, oh my God, I won. I just, I assumed someone had t- overtaken me, but you know, um, I just. That is amazing. I, yeah, I do think for other women, like a lot of women said to me, oh my God, I've had three kids. I won't be able to do that. I'm like, well, you can, you actually can. Of course you can. It took me two years, but you can. Just do it. Like We are amazing, aren't we? We are. We're like, like Yes, we else. totally are. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was including you, please. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Paula. You. Thank, Thank you, Paula. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey. Remember, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for being part of the Baby Tribe community. See you next week.